welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marchalero. And this week, my guest is Dr. Jessica Hebert. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, John. It's good to be here. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Kelly Dumont introduced us. I think this is going to be a really fun show, although I know nothing about what you do. <laughs> well, I'm excited. To, I'm excited to tell you all about it. For the listeners, Dr. Jessica Haybert is a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Anesthesiology and Perioperative Medicine at the Oregon Health and Science University. She earned a PhD in biology from Portland State in 2018. And when not sciencing, Dr. Haybert is an international award-winning public science communicator and a science communication fellow at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry. Cool. So I'm going to ask you about your career, how you got started. What got you turned on to the biological sciences? I know I interview a lot of hard science people, physicists and astronomers, and there's usually some TV show like Star Trek or science fiction book or series of science fiction authors. But how does it happen for someone like you? Well, uh, I mean, for a lot of folks, uh, it starts in childhood. And for me, it absolutely did as well. Uh, when I was about seven, I uh, my family was living in Japan. I'm an Air Force brat. And I came up with a uh there was a science fair and I wanted a pet so badly, but we lived in this little apartment and we couldn't have a dog or cat. So I raised snails. So I did a, <laughs> a lab, like a science fair experiment on uh, life of snails and feeding habits and uh, how fast or how slow they could crawl. And I think that really sparked my curiosity into, so how does this all work? Uh, of course, Star Trek was a huge inspiration for me growing up. Uh, oh, cool. My dad, yeah, my dad was a uh, a Star Trek fan, and we watched um, we watched Next Generation together. And Voyager was in first run when I was in high school. I know that probably dates me a little bit, and we watched that together. So that was kind of our thing. He was the one who handed me uh, Heinlein's A Farmer in the Sky and said, I think, oh, I think this is for favorites. you. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I, I, I grew, grew up, up on Heinlein. Heinlein's amazing uh, and laid so much of the, the foundation of my curiosity and discovery I get from my dad and those early experiences. Were your early aspirations to, since you were into biology, was it to become a physician? I did think about taking the MD path, but then I realized I didn't want to, I wanted to know what was going on behind the disease. And scientific curiosity for me is discovery. I didn't feel like I could do as much of that uh, as a clinician. I know plenty of clinician scientists who do amazing work. It just wasn't for me. So that dictated your educational path, a bachelor's in chemistry and biology, and then a PhD instead of a, a medical degree. So that's that's the research-oriented path side of it, right? Right. Uh, I came to it from a very strange direction, though. <laughs> I tell people that I became a scientist out of rebellion. Uh, I had a full-ride scholarship to study vocal music at the University of North Dakota. Uh, I also had a scholarship to study linguistics, but I went to go visit this 
uh, Minnesota State University Moorhead and met uh, one of the people who had become one of my mentors for a long time, Joseph Provost. And he started telling me about the sodium hydrogen exchanger in breast and lung cell cancer. And I was immediately hooked. I said, what's it going to take for me to join your lab? Uh, and I got a full ride scholarship at, at MSUM. It was called the Honors Scholarship. And the deal was you had to practice in the field of interest for you. And so I interviewed with uh, his lab and uh, he and Dr. Mark Wallert took me on my first day of campus. So I've been in research. Um, it was 18 years in uh, August. It feels good when you have somebody who's excited about what you're excited about and they take you under, your, under their wings. They taught me to be excited about the sodium hydrogen exchanger, which I knew <laughs> nothing snort, about. Snort. <laughs> I, I was like, I don't, I don't know anything about that, but I want to, and uh, that really uh, inspired my curiosity to learn more about uh, proteomics and the things that regulate protein expression. I saw in your bio that, as you said, you were interested in linguistics too. What drove you to? Uh, minor in Spanish, of all things, because one doesn't normally think of Spanish as a science-related uh, language, or is it? I think so. Um, I think a lot of the root words that we have in science come from the Latin stems, which then birthed uh, the Romance languages. But um, for me, I, I studied science because I wanted to be able to communicate ideas to people. And Spanish is a rapidly uh, growing language of use in the United States. I thought that was really the way to go for me. I've always picked up languages very quickly. I grew up in Japan. Um, and I had friends from all over the world. So I speak a smattering of a whole bunch of different languages, but I'm fluent in English and Spanish, and I'm, you know, functional in a few others. There was a bit of a gap between your bachelor's and your PhD. Fill me in on that. Uh, yeah, I, I, this is going to require a little vulnerability, but I'm happy to, to share. I was terrified about grad school. I saw what was happening to uh, labs. I, I got out of college and saw people getting defunded. And I said, I don't want to have to run my own lab, work for 20 years and suddenly lose all my funding. But I, I did some stints as a tech in a couple of labs until I landed in the lab of Dr. Terry Morgan at Oregon Health and Science University. And he looked at me in my first interview and he said, you're a true believer, aren't you? Like you are here for the research. And he took me under his wing. And about two years later, he said, I don't understand why you're not applying to grad school. You have, you ask too many questions for you to stay here and, and be a tech. I know lifelong techs who do an amazing job, but he said, you need to go to grad school. That so I did. Like a life-changing experience when somebody says that to you, it turns you around completely. Changed everything. You. Wow. That's yeah. cool. So your PhD thesis, I'm going to read it out loud here if I can understand <laughs> it. Pathology and fetal effects of placental development and long-term health. Can you elaborate on that? That is a mouthful. Sure. So the placenta is my favorite temporary organ the human body ever makes. Uh, it is the only temporary organ the human body ever makes. And fun fact, it is made by every single one of us. The placenta is made by the fetus. So uh, we've we've all made uh, an organ that we've never had to interact with after birth. 
uh, the placenta, because we often just dispose of it after birth, uh, it's, it's too bad because there's a lot of things that we can tell about how well it was functioning that tells us how well baby is going to do early in life and later on in life. If the placenta doesn't work right, you're often born small or your organs are underdeveloped, and that can definitely have a huge impact on the kind of diseases you get as an adult. What does the placenta do? What purpose does it serve? The placenta's main job is to exchange wastes and nutrients between the mother and the fetus. And if it doesn't do its job properly, you don't get enough nutrients to the fetus and it doesn't grow. Oh, waste products. Yep. That's why the baby has its uh, waste products taken care of in the womb. Yes, it does. I never understood that. That's that's interesting. It is Can- an app. It's an exchange organ. It has its own immune cells. It uh, The placenta has its own very high rate of metabolism. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely critical to our development as human beings. I saw a TV show a while back that caused me to have a question about the placenta, and I couldn't wait to ask you about it. Are, are scenes of childbirth on TV and movies uh, anatomically complete? Or do they typically gloss over something? Oh, uh, that's a a good question. Do you mean in terms of uh, they don't show the placenta coming out? Yes. (laughs) There's a baby and then suddenly everything is over. They even show cutting the umbilical cord. Right. And 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 the baby comes out and suddenly (laughs) it's in a blanket and everything's cool. And I think people get a a very distorted opinion about childbirth from that. Uh, I think that childbirth is often painted as, oh, it's such a beautiful experience. And it's a, it's a mess. There's a lot of endorphins <laughs> happening, though. So it can often get remembered as, as uh, less painful than it is. All right. Uh, next question. Speaking of placentas and, and fetuses, can a pregnant mother pass COVID-19 onto their fetus? Oh man, that is a <laughs> that is a a very big question uh and up to a lot of debate. I can't tell you definitively because it's not um that's not part of my research and right now that's very very bleeding edge. The thought is yes, uh but we don't know for sure. All right. Oh, that's enough of my amateur curiosity questions. So you completed a two-year postdoc position in OBGYN, uh, and now you're in a second postdoc. Is that normal for your field? It can be. I think everybody comes to where they want to go career-wise in a in a different way. Um, so I had two very productive years looking at mitochondrial function in the placenta in uh, people who had gestational diabetes versus people who didn't, and uh, how either male or female fetal sex affected the development of the placenta. Really neat stuff. Um, But I wanted to try to take just a little bit of a detour to build my own ideas because I knew I was interested in metabolism and the placenta and vasculature because that was what so much of my um, grad school work was. How do blood vessels change and develop during pregnancy? And I thought the best way for me to reframe that was to look in a totally different direction. So I talked to some cancer people, and then I met uh, my current mentor. His name is Michael Hutchins. He is an anesthesiologist 
at uh, the VA and at OHSU in Portland, and he studies the kidney. So I joke that I just took a little step to the right and to the back and just moved right on over to the kidney to study kind of the same questions, just in a different organ. And I, I've already done a presentation called The Placenta and Kidney Are Cousins, and I hold to that. I'm finding more and more every day that they are so closely connected. I can tell from listening to you for just a few minutes that you have picked the perfect profession. You're not MD material. You are science research material with a medicine Thanks. Animal. Yeah, you're, you're doing love- exactly what you should be doing. It sounds from your, from your description of your life and your career. You had just nailed it, Jessica. I feel like I am finally going into the right direction, but it has taken a long time. So I am the poster child for if you feel like you're taking the long way around, that's okay. You're going to end up where you're meant to be. Okay, well, that's the end of section one of the show. Let's take a break. Folks, I'm chatting with the postdoctoral research fellow, Dr. Jessica Haybert. We'll be back in 60 seconds. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Charlotte Henry with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Macmore, simply go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter www.macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and all our other affiliate partners. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their way. Pretty cool, right? And even better, you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts just like this one. So, The next time you're thinking about an online purchase, please do come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. I'm chatting with postdoctoral research fellow at OHSU, Dr. Jessica Hebert. Yes, Hebert. Hebert. It's all right. When I was uh, visiting Paris for a a conference last year, I got called Dr. Hebert everywhere, and I really thought that was great. But it's Hebert. It's like Stephen Colbert. Right. It's Stephen Colbert. That's the way he pronounces it. Yeah. Even though he's from South Carolina. (laughs) Tell me about the current research that you're working on. Sure. Uh, So I am studying a condition called rhabdomyolysis. Uh, Rhabdo coming from muscle and myo coming from myoglobin. Uh, So you see rhabdomyolysis in people who are weightlifters or in earthquake crush victims or car accident victims. When they take an injury to a muscle, usually like a, a large muscle in their extremities, and when the muscle gets destroyed, it releases myoglobin into the bloodstream. Your kidney loves myoglobin. It loves myoglobin a little too much. And uh, toxins end up backing up into your bloodstream, your kidneys stop working, and uh, you can uh, be poisoned by your own body and die. Um, There aren't a whole lot of effective treatments for it right now. And a lot of those treatments do require very rapid rapid treatment. You have to find them right away and, and begin treatment. So my research is trying to find um, ways that are 
more easily portable to treat people, especially in um, difficult areas like uh, in combat where you have uh, helicopters coming in and out or at an earthquake site where a hospital might not be super accessible. Um, so more portable treatment and uh, treatment that can happen hours down the road that can still help rescue the kidney. That's pretty amazing if it can happen. I mean, you wouldn't normally, I wouldn't normally think of a remedy that could be you know, implemented in the field in a few hours, but what do I know? <laughs> uh, one of the drugs we're looking at right now, um, we it, it would take just a couple of milliliters instead of the current treatment is 10 liters of saline. 10 liters of saline take up a lot oh, of space wow. and a lot of weight on a, a helicopter just yeah. to treat one person versus if we could carry a couple of liters of this one drug that we could inject people with and within 30 minutes or an hour, find them, inject them and save their lives. Does the result of this kind of research require FDA approval or is it on a different track? Uh, it will. Uh, right now, we're in the basic research stage. So we're working on animal models. Uh, but I, the results are already very, very promising. And I think that it could very well go to human trials, uh, hopefully soon. <laughs> the sooner, the better. So what do you see for your future and your career? Do you have a, something laid out where you want to take a next step? Or are you just sort of happy where you are right now? I'm kind of playing it by ear. That's a million-dollar question, isn't it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're always finding our next step. Even senior researchers I know are still thinking about, so what comes next? What grant or what outreach program? For me, um, I foresee myself remaining in research, uh, as I've been told time and again, Jessica, as long as you still have something to say, you're going to be in research. And I still have a lot to say, but I love to teach. So teaching and research, I think, are always going to be a part of my life. And of course, um, I do some interesting and weird science communication. That's uh, next one on of those my ways. List. Great. And I, I think that that uh, you have to sort of find a way to recharge away from the bench and making creative science happen is a big part of my life. So here it is next on my list. You do science communication at the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry. Tell me about some of your communication projects. So I'm a fellow with them, which means I am part of their Meet a Scientist program. And often when you ask, there's been several studies, you ask a, a kid to draw what they think a scientist looks like. And they usually draw an older white man with a beard. And uh, I <laughs> am not an older man with a beard. So uh, it's nice to have that representation to say, no, you can look like a whole lot of different things and still be a scientist. I built a model of a placenta that people can come in and squirt liquid through different size tubes with different curls and see how long it takes to deliver blood to a fetus and how that changes in preeclampsia. And kids and drunk people absolutely love it. So we have a really good time. That was my next uh, question. So <laughs> when I think of science outreach, I think of Bill Nye. I think of Science Friday on NPR. I think of Neil deGrasse Tyson and in previous days, Carl Sagan. And people get pretty excited about black holes and space and science and alien life and discovering planets and 
global climate change and so on. How do people respond to science outreach when it's medicine oriented? Kind of lay that out for me because I'm very unfamiliar with that. I love that you mentioned Nyan Sagan. You can't see inside my office right now, but I have a SciComm wall behind me and I have pictures of Nyan Sagan and Rosalind Franklin. <laughs> uh, they're, they're my superheroes. So how you translate any kind of science for somebody is you find common language. And you say, for instance, when I was studying preeclampsia, it affects 10% of all human pregnancies. Can you back you up and explain what preeclampsia is for us? Sure. Uh, preeclampsia is when you have high blood pressure and it affects um, fetal growth. That's kind of the most basic explanation. But what it results in is often a baby who is really small, who grows up to have health problems. Is that a danger for the mother at childbirth due to the high blood pressure? Yes, it is. Um, and you can also get what's called postpartum eclampsia. So it's a, a preeclampsia that happens after you give birth. It can happen up to six months after birth. And oh, wow. it kills it kills uh, pregnant people all the time. Uh, in fact, it killed somebody on Downton Abbey. And so I get I a lot that. of... I saw that. I saw that. Yeah. That's a lot of people's touchstone for it is, oh. <laughs> and then Abbey. I laugh. Yes. I laugh and I say, Downton Abbey made you learn something about placentas. Good job. Is there a test that you can uh, use to watch for it, see it coming, or manage it with medicine? Or what? Yes. There's, um, you can have early onset preeclampsia. You can have late onset preeclampsia. So it can happen at different stages. It has different causes. So preeclampsia is kind of one umbrella term for multiple things that can cause uh, the symptoms that we see. Is this the kind of thing you talk about in your science outreach to make people aware of research? Absolutely. Wow. Did people get turned on by this? It's kind of, it's kind of stern stuff. No, like you just have to, sometimes you have to find ways to make science sexy and the placenta is absolutely sexy. It's beautiful. <laughs> you call yourself a placentologist. Is that, I say I that, do, right? that is a, that, that is a real, real is word. Is that a technical real word? It is. Yeah, that is a thing that you can be when you grow up. Stay in school. Don't do drugs. Like, you can be a placentologist. <laughs> this is great. Kelly warned me about this. I knew I was going to have some fun with this show. <laughs> learning thing, learning new things. Meeting interesting, that's, exciting guests and learning new things. It's fantastic. That's the heart of, of what I do. I maintain that science isn't for the smartest person in the room. Science is for the most enthusiastic people. And I think all of us asked questions when we were small about uh, how do where were dinosaurs? How does this work? Um, we all had a favorite dinosaur growing up. So what changed? What can I do to help make you curious again? I'm here for it. That's something that I wondered about from time to time and all my friends wonder about and all my guests wonder about is how does the magic happen? When does the light turn on in the brain? What is it about being in sixth grade and suddenly having a fire in the mind, suddenly full of curiosity and interest in the world and asking questions? Because so many kids don't have that. And we don't understand, I don't think we understand how that light gets turned on in the mind. I, I would say we all have our different interests. And it's all about it, not just using inclusive language, but inclusive ideas. We 
Uh, I have uh, my brother-in-law really enjoys working on cars. If I can make an analogy between the placenta and a car engine, I'm going to do it. Um, I'm going to find ways to relate to people and uh, be as open as I can about this is what I do. Ask me your questions. Don't ever call your questions stupid. I want to talk about the thing that we're, I'm passionate about and make it a thing that you're passionate about too. I had a seventh grade science teacher who turned my light on and it was amazing. Astronomy. Had a telescope took us out at night, talked to us about astronomy stuff and all of a sudden I bought a, my dad bought me a little telescope and I started looking at the stars and the moon at night and all of a sudden I was full of enthusiasm for space and started learning about the Milky Way and then just went on from there. It's amazing how that happens. Somebody found your trigger and that's all it, that's all it takes is finding yeah, that find one spark. Trigger. Yeah, for all yeah. your teachers out there, find the trigger and light that light. Yep. <laughs> yes, please. So you told me that you enjoy making music. Boy, are you talented about science and space <laughs> and things that don't start with us. And you have your own band, the PDX broadsides tell me about that i'm curious uh so we started as uh, an accidental pirate shanty band uh nine years ago and it was just three of us singing a cappella really dirty shanties and then we started writing songs about zombies and uh well, what if a robot fell in love and what <laughs> uh, a lot of our songs start with what if what if uh, somebody was going to space and they were saying goodbye to someone that they never thought they were going to see again? We write about uh, fandoms and feelings, and a lot of those things happen to be the things that we're interested in and love. So there's quite a few songs about science. We've toured the U.S. and Canada. Um, we just released our fifth studio album called Relatable Content last year and went on our first full East Coast tour. Uh, yeah, we sing about the things that we know and we love. Do you have some published albums? Are they on iTunes? They are on iTunes and Spotify and Bandcamp, and you can find us at pdxbroadsides.com. All five of our studio albums, and we have a couple of EPs and singles out as well, and a couple of things that are going to be coming out during the holiday season. So keep your eyes open. We were talking before the show about the only science song I know is The Elements by Tom Lehrer. I love him. Did cool you hear? I, I had Tom, no idea that there was so much to do about science and music. There's so many science-based musicians out there, and I'm, I've been so lucky to get to collaborate with a lot of them um, over the last few years as we start to get in touch through SciComCamp Camp or ComSciCon, uh, SciFu, and get to meet and exchange ideas. It's been really amazing. You told me to ask you before the show about sea shanties and the history of gunpowder. I can't wait to hear this one. Oh, Lord. Uh, so in my other other life, I'm Captain Greta uh, and of PDXYAR, pdxyar.org. We are performing piratical privateers. We do historical reenactments, including cannoneering, gunpowder lines, um, talking about the history of sale and we do get invited by places like the Oregon Museum of Science and Industry to talk about historical sale, to talk about the science of gunpowder. But sea shanties are my my big, big love. And there is a science to sea shanties, believe it or not. 
What is that? So sea shanties weren't just for entertainment. They were for keeping rhythm for work on a boat. And so you had to know the rhythm. Uh, so essentially the time signature, the meter for different activities on board and be able to write around them in ways that would still engage the mind. Sea shanties are absolutely psychom. Ah, okay. Right. <laughs> you were just a bundle of cool stuff. I could Thanks. talk to you for a long time, but we're kind of coming to the end of the show, and I just have time for a couple more questions. Sure. So, clearly, you've had a lot of success through mentors and people who were enthusiastic about you, and you were so enthusiastic, and, and your light was so turned on about science that it was great for you to, to do what you've been doing. But with all that in mind, what advice would you give to young women who are interested in science, whether it's medicine, astronomy, physics, biology, engineering, what advice would you give them if they're um, running into resistance, let's say? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I know a lot of people, especially right now, given COVID-19, um, are struggling to find their place and find connections in a world that's a little bit on fire right now. We and don't talk about that very much. We talk about the disease, we talk about everything about COVID-19, except how it's having an impact on people's career choices and paths. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely changed the way that we network, uh, the way that we meet people. Uh, but it's also had some upsides. I would have never met Mike Hutchins if it hadn't been for, for COVID-19, because I don't know that I would have necessarily considered a kidney lab, but uh, it was... It was a different kind of networking and fate that brought us together, and I could not be happier. So I think I would say open your mind to other possibilities, and uh, you have to be flexible in some way. If you can't leave the location you're in, then think about how many different fields you might be open to looking at. If you are absolutely set on you want to be uh, an optometrist and that is your one goal, be willing to look at different schools or maybe different mentors um, and never ever underestimate uh, the power of your network. Talk to other people, your peers, um, people who are maybe just a step above you. It doesn't always necessarily necessarily need to be the most senior person in the room who can get you to where you're going. Opportunity is everywhere and ask for it because trust me, we want to give you the opportunity to try things. And if I don't know somebody who can help you, I know somebody who knows somebody. Use the network. My wife is a teacher and she encourages her students to get involved in internships, get out in the workforce between semesters and meet people and see how the workplace works. It's not a, does that give you an idea about how people really do their work for a living, but it introduces you to people who might have an influence on your career too. I hope that there are more paid internships uh, offered as well, because taking uh, an unpaid internship is definitely a privilege and not everyone has that that ability. So if you're thinking about offering an internship or some sort of volunteer position, apply for grant money. There's a lot of money out there. Apply yes. for that and pay people. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, we've come to the end of the show. I want to thank you for joining me. This has been most illuminating and educational for me, especially 
And I think for the listeners, it's been an amazing experience having you on the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, John, so much. It's been a, a pleasure. And if you have other questions about the placenta, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dame underscore DNA. That was my next question, how to contact you. If people have polite Thanks. and interesting questions, that's, that's your Twitter address. That's how we do. Hashtag Team Placenta. All right. Well, Jessica, thank you for joining me on Background Mode. It's been great. Thank you again so much. Folks, you've been listening to John Marcellero and Dr. Jessica Hebert on the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week.